This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss how state health insurance marketplaces can be improved. With me to discuss the topic is Jack Hoadley, Georgetown University Health Policy Institute Research Professor. Jack, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, Professor Hoadley's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, over the past few months, there's been considerable discussion concerning the number of insurance plans participating in the Affordable Care Act's health insurance marketplaces and plan affordability in these state markets. Concerning participation in 2016, approximately 30% of counties had only two insurers participating in the marketplace and 10% of counties had only one. On affordability, based on insurer rate requests, in a sample of 17 marketplaces, the Kaiser Family Foundation calculated the second lowest silver plan will increase in 2017 by a weighted average of 9%. The 2016 increase for these plans was 2%. The Congress anticipated marketplace instability by creating risk corridors and reinsurance programs, but just for three years or through this year. With me again to discuss how insurance marketplace performance or stability can be improved is Georgetown's Professor Jack Hoadley. So with that on background, Jack, let me ask to begin, is not the stabilization issue explained in part by employers maintaining coverage uh, and the under-enrollment by uh, young adults? Yeah, I think those are definitely factors that are part of the story, but I think they're not the whole story. So, you know, certainly when employers are, are keeping people uh, under that kind of coverage, that's a good thing. People stay covered. Um, but it does mean there are fewer people that are moving over into the marketplace than we might have expected going in. And certainly if, uh, if young adults are less likely to sign up than, than predictions, that's, um, you know, that's not a good thing. But again, partly because, uh, those people lack insurance and are, and are more at risk, uh, if they do have healthcare issues. Um, but also again, because it reduces the number of people uh, in the risk pool that's picked up for the uh, for the marketplaces. Certainly another factor that's playing in both to decisions by plans of whether to stay in the market and the premium cost is the cost for the newly insured population, which may be somewhat higher, again, partly because fewer sort of healthy young adults join, but also simply because people who may have come in because they didn't have any insurance before may have some pent-up demand uh, needs for health care that, that they need to take care of in the first year or two. Um, but it's also a system that, that, that we've developed where there are potentially um, more incentives for people with health care needs to enroll. So, you know, even though there's a penalty that's that's uh, intended to make sure that everybody enrolls, that penalty has been phased in, and so you know people who are relatively healthy may take their time. Maybe we'll see more of them move in over the next couple of years. Um, but those are all factors that affect uh, how the marketplace works, how plans decide whether to participate, and what happens with premiums. 
And in fact, the penalty would be much less than a premium uh, That's right. cost. Yes. So if it was just a straight um, uh, dollar uh, calculation, you would pick the penalty. My That's research, right. and, partic- and particularly so with with the first year or two, when the penalties were were phased in and, and kept low on purpose, um, just to, to not have as big a shock to the system. Uh, as the penalties more fully phase in, the, 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 the cost trade-off will get a little bit closer, but it's still going to be less than than paying uh, than for somebody to pay the premium to, to get their health insurance. Of course, if they end up needing health care, uh, then health insurance would work out to be a better deal. Mm-hmm. My uh, research showed that uh, for a market insurance market to be uh, more stable, uh, the estimate is you want about 40% of the risk pool to be uh, those who are 18 to 34 years old. And what we have currently, I looked for 2015 of the 13 million enrolled, was only approximately 28% of that age group. Let me go to um, uh, your paper. So in August, uh, you and your colleague Sabrina Corlett uh, published uh, a paper uh, titled Strategies to Stabilize the Affordable Care Marketplaces. Uh, this actually uh, uh, received a, a, a good deal of attention, and in it you propose uh, several solutions uh, by which we can improve uh, market stability. So um, let me ask you about a few of these. Um, and these you take from uh, experience with other insurance plans uh, Medicare Advantage and the Part D prescription drug benefit are examples. So let me start by asking about a fallback plan. You suggest that might be one option, and this is based on uh, the Medicare Part D program. So how might this work? Yeah, so so we we definitely you know thought there could be some lessons from Medicare, um, you know, which went through its own formation of a marketplace, and particularly in the Part D program going back to 2006. And in this paper, which was uh, sponsored by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, we tried to see whether some of what Medicare did would be applicable here. You know, when when the Part D prescription drug benefit was introduced, uh, now it's about 12 years ago. Um, you know, nobody was quite sure that anybody would come to the table and offer the insurance, and these were to be standalone drug plans that only provided coverage for prescription drugs. You know, that's something that really didn't exist. And so the drafters, in those days it was a Republican-controlled Congress, uh, decided they needed to set up a fallback so that if no plans came to a particular part of the country, uh, there would be a fallback plan, and that was basically set up as something where the government would take all the risk. They would basically hire a health plan uh, to operate the benefit in that particular part of the country, but, but the health plan would not be a risk. And so, you know, the health plan would get paid for its services in administering a drug formulary and enrolling people in, you know, processing claims and all that kind of stuff, um, but would have no risk. And so, you know, that's a line of business that, that, that some companies do and, and, and presumably could have done. So bringing that same concept into the affordable care marketplaces, you know, we had the notion that uh, a backup could be useful. You know, as you mentioned, there's a lot of counties now that are down to just one plan, and there's actually one county in Arizona with with no plans um, that could still change. Uh, but, you know, what happens there? And so if you created a fallback plan, which had somehow the government being the taking the primary risk and operating um, a plan, 
that could serve as a backup to make sure people in whatever part of the country had no other options, would have an option, would not have to suddenly, you know, leave the insurance market go uninsured or have to somehow find something in the in the non-subsidized marketplace. But there's really a second purpose for a backup plan, uh, at least in some people's eyes, because if you had a backup plan and if you let it exist not only when there were no other plans available or maybe only one other plan available, but potentially allowed it to exist, you know, when there are maybe a couple of plans in the market, uh, it could become a force of influence, a stabilizing influence in the market and even something that would allow the market to have maybe some better influence over over price negotiations with hospitals and physicians. And there have been people who've talked about, you know, for a long time about a public option in, in the Affordable Care Act marketplaces, and, and this would be maybe something partway the concept of a public option. It could be a sort of public-private mix in some way. It could be you know, operated off of the Medicare framework. It could be operated somehow off of the Federal Employees Health Benefit Program framework. Um, but it could not just be a possibility for providing that option in case there were no other plans available, but also playing a role in how it negotiates and how it operates and how it prices itself, uh, perhaps influencing the pricing and the negotiating for some of the other plans in the marketplace in a positive way. So would ostensibly create more competition. Exactly. Okay. And so in a market that only had, you know, one plan, you could say, okay, here's a competitor, and that puts a competitive effort, actually puts more marketplace forces on that one plan, or even if there are two or three plans and you allow this to exist. And obviously it's a policy choice to make whether you do this, you know, only in, in counties or, or regions where there are, you know, one or fewer plans or two or fewer or three or fewer whatever. Um, but it could actually be a competitive force, and although some might look at this as a, you know, bringing more government into the program, you could also bring it, you know, look at it as bringing more market competition into the program. Okay, great. Thank you. You suggest marketplace, uh, as an alternative solution, you suggest marketplace participation requirements, that is, states could require plans to expand coverage availability. Uh, what are these and how successful are these? As I read your paper, you are not overly positive about this alternative. Yeah, it's, there's a mixed record there. I mean, Medicare had some success, uh, and this is now uh, goes back about 15 years, creating a concept called a regional preferred provider organization or a regional PPO. And what that was was an expansion to the existing Medicare Advantage program where private plans, you know, offer an alternative way to get your Medicare benefits from the traditional fee-for-service Medicare program. And the regional PPOs were allowed to come in, um, and they had there were some advantages to the plans that operated this way in terms of some uh, relaxed regulatory requirements. Um, but in exchange, they had to cover the entire region in which and the regions were defined by the government. So it basically meant an entire state or, or a two- or three-state region. And so if you want to cover the urban areas, you have to cover the rural areas and so forth. Um, and that has, um, you know, there have been a number of companies that, that did decide to enter the Medicare Advantage market with these regional PPO products. Some of them still exist. And it does, it has helped but be a situation where everybody, no matter where in the country they live or nearly everybody, uh, has access to a Medicare Advantage plan if it's only that regional PPO. There's also a case in, in the state of Florida where during 
negotiations with the, the, I guess it was the Attorney General's office in Florida, uh, when a couple of health plans wanted to merge together, uh, one of the conditions was put on to approve that merger is that plan, the, the plan involved would have to expand coverage to some uncovered counties in the state. Um, and they've been continuing to use that. And so I think in that case, there's been some modest success. I haven't looked very deeply at, at how that's worked out. There was also a case in Arizona where they asked PPOs if they wanted to be part of the marketplace to participate on a statewide basis. But there's some evidence there that it backfired, and PPOs could say to the program, well, if we have to do it statewide, we might rather not do it anywhere at all. And so that's the risk you run. You say, well, condition of involvement is to to have a broader area. Um, it could lead, lead companies to simply saying, well, it's not worth it. We just won't participate. But I think there are some ways this could work, and, and you could think of it as a potential point of leverage even. Um, you know, informal negotiations over, say, a rate review uh, could say, well, you know, we'll potentially could give you, allow you a little bit higher rate if in exchange you expanded some to some counties where, you know, we don't have much competition. We'd like to see a competitor uh, or rules along that line. But it's certainly, you know, one of the, the items in an arsenal for a state looking to figure out how to expand the availability of plants across their particular state. Okay, thank you. This next um, component uh, has received a lot of discussion, and I mentioned it in the intro, that's risk corridors. So you mentioned uh, these as a stabilizing mechanism as well as uh, reinsurance, um, meaning that these could be made permanent. They are in other programs. In this instance, they time out. This year, not only do they time out, but the Republicans uh, in the Congress in 14 attached an appropriations rider relative to what money CMS could use in the reimbursement corridor re, uh, program. So this is, this is a messy topic, but uh, let me ask you about, um, first of all, explain how these uh, work and what's your view relative to these becoming more permanent as in Part D? Yeah, and, and, and as you say, in Part D, these were put in when the program was created, and ironically by a Republican-led Congress at the time, to include what, what we sometimes call the three R's, the risk adjustment, the risk quarters, and the reinsurance, as a permanent part of the Part D program. So, so you know, 12 years later, they still exist. Um, you know, re risk adjustment is the least controversial of those, and, and, and one that really has not um been the subject of political discussions very much, and it is the one in the, in the Affordable Care Act marketplaces that is permanent. And so that's simply used to make sure that if, if your plan enrolls more people that are you know, older or less healthy, um, that the payment will be compensated and there'll be some money exchanged across the marketplace between plans to try to level the playing field and make sure that you're not penalized just because an older or a less healthy uh, set of enrollees pick your plan as opposed to the competition. Um, the reinsurance is probably the next least controversial, if we can say it that way. And the idea there was to spread risk uh, across the marketplace uh, really to compensate for the possibility that, that a handful of your enrollees, even though they might not have been flagged by age or prior health status, but just might be unlucky. You might have you know, a number of people with uh, really expensive cancers or very bad auto accidents that leads to you know, very high cost, 
um, whatever the circumstance is. And so the idea, again, is to reinsure the risk a little bit, uh, do that across not just the plans in the marketplace, but the broader individual and small group market, and, again, use, you know, savings from one plan to help compensate higher costs from another plan. You know, this has gotten controversial because the math doesn't always work out. You don't always take in as much money as you need to get out. And so there have been some political fights over, you know, what happens in those circumstances and more complicated than it's probably worth getting into. But regardless, that, that system phases out at the end of this year. The risk sharing or the risk corridors have been the most controversial. And the idea there was with plans that are new, um, you want to limit the potential for profit and loss in the first couple of years. In Part D, this was done and, and actually continues to operate, even though we're beyond the first couple of years. But it says that if 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 plans are just not as much at risk as they might otherwise be, so if they're if after they've made their bids, if their costs end up considerably higher than what they predicted, um, the the risk pool that that covers these dollars would help to pick up and give some money back to them to cover their, their less successful overall bottom line. But in the opposite direction, if they end up, you know, kind of charging more premium than they really needed, and it turns out they've, they've made a lot of money, then they pay into the pool. And, again, it, it could be done in a way that balances out. Um, and actually in the, in the Medicare Part D program, there are more payments made from the health plans back to the government through their risk order system than the other way around. So while people have critically called this a bailout, in the in the Part D program, and you might say it's a bailout for the government. The government is actually making money on the risk orders. That's not, however, been the case in the affordable care marketplaces. And, and as you mentioned, uh, the Congress basically killed that program, made, made sure it couldn't really operate. And this has had an, an effect on some of the plans that really expected to have this as backup money. And when it turned out they needed it, you know, that just became losses that in some cases they weren't equipped to handle, and so that's been a factor in some of the co-ops that have gone out of business and so forth. And this is a considerable but, amount of money. It's $2 billion. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of dollars involved. And, and the whole point was a brand-new market that's unpredictable in a lot of ways just might not work right. Plans might not get their bids right. Um, you know, they may have some startup issues in trying to get things organized, whether they're a new company like a co-op or whether they're an older company that's going into a new line of business. And so, you know, the idea was these three together provided some stability. And we talk about the possibility that, that the reinsurance in particular, I mean, I think the risk corridor feels like it's at this point so politicized that it's hard to think about trying to extend it. But the reinsurance really does make some sense. Um, in, the, in that if costs just, I mean, what if you had a very serious flu season this coming winter and everybody's costs end up higher? You know, that's, that's really where, where, you know, having a sort of common pool, uh, to draw from and, and potentially bring in some government money to do it, to do it. Whereas another year you might end up with, with uh, a very low flu season and therefore less cost. But it also deals with, and the reinsurance is most best targeted towards, you know, the kinds of examples I used before of, you know, I was unlucky enough in my plan to have, you know, seven people who got this really serious cancer that, that just comes with all kinds of costs or a whole series of bad car accidents that leads to um, just long stays of, of hospital care to get people back, back to shape. 
and you know why should the health plan you know particularly as they're beginning to learn how to to manage risk um, be on the hook just because these unexpected things happen to it and if you pull the risk across the larger population of the marketplace then any given plan has the potential to benefit any given plan has the potential to, to help subsidize and it's really the whole point of insurance to spreading risk as broadly as possible mm-hmm, mm-hmm. your last uh, category of the methods you ID are improving enrollment you know insurance is almost wholly about uh, the end, the number, and having a big risk pool or as large as possible. So methods by which uh, marketplace enrollment could be improved, what are some of these? Yeah, one of the biggest ones is just you know improving the quality of outreach and communication out to the general public. Again, I think back to the start of the Medicare Part D program and and, you know, CMS, the agency that runs Medicare, was out there with buses. President Bush was out on some of the trips. Other leaders in the government were out. They would meet up with local congressmen. Uh, they would hold media campaigns. It really was sort of an all-hands-on-deck. Even some of the Democrats who were skeptical about the particular version of uh, the model under which Part D was was created, so you had some of that same sort of political rancor that, that we did later on with the Affordable Care Act, but the, the Democrats, who had, some of whom had voted against the bill, you know, were out there part, helping to ring the bell and say, we want our Medicare beneficiaries to sign up for this. Obviously, we didn't see that with the Affordable Care Act. Instead, we really had disinformation campaigns, um, you know, plans of silence. We had states that said, you know, no state employee could be involved in helping to provide counseling. And so I think if we could really, you know, change the mindset to have a more unified kind of outreach campaign and say to people, you know, here's this, you don't have to do it, um, there's a penalty, you know, we can be all, you know, cover all the bases, but, but this is something that's potentially a good deal for you. There are subsidies available. We know there are people out there who would qualify for very large subsidies who just don't know that it, that the options are there for them. And if we had something that wasn't sort of so wrapped up in, in partisanship, and maybe I'm, you know, kind of dreaming pie in the sky a little bit, but if we could get to the point, you know, maybe under a new administration, it's no longer President Obama, um, you know, with Obamacare, but it's a new administration that, that's operating. And, it's, and it, you know, obviously we have one candidate who said, you know, he wants to repeal this act, but another candidate who really wants to build on it. So certainly in the latter case, you know, if the Clinton administration could be a little bit relieved of some of the political burden of, of, you know, this was Obama's program and people who were opposing it because he was president, maybe we'd have an opportunity for sort of a bit of a fresh start on the outreach campaign. And even if, you know, we can't completely get rid of the politics, I think a new, you know, outreach campaign that could really get out and let people know these things are available would be a big part of it. Um, you know, potentially identifying people who, you know, have been paying tax penalties for not getting coverage, making sure they know that instead of paying the penalty, they could uh, they could buy insurance. Uh, making sure some of the, the issues are resolved. There's something called the family glitch where people who have uh, an option for employer-sponsored insurance, but you know, it's not really very affordable for their families. There's a complicated sort of essentially mistake in the law that meant that if some of those people aren't eligible for the subsidies, if that could be fixed with new legislation, you know, that would bring a number of people in, um, even potential for doing things, restructuring the penalty in some way or thinking about ways to automatically enroll some people 
or automatically, um, you know, give them access to their subsidies. I think just trying to be creative and figuring out ways to interest people in this program to make sure they know it's out there um, would get some more people involved. It also might, you know, that kind of level of interest and enthusiasm might mean a year from now some of the insurers that have, that have opted to, you know, say, oh, this is just a mess, we're going to drop out of it, maybe see more people and more younger people coming in. You know, maybe they get back in the market and then we can, again, reinvigorate the kind of competitive forces that we saw a little better of in the first couple of years of the program. On the family glitch, just to note, that's a considerable number of uh, individuals. That's 4 million in number. That's right. Well, sadly, we're at our uh, time boundary, so I, I do genuinely appreciate this review of your paper and these options to improve or stabilize the marketplaces. We'll certainly see uh, what enrollment is for 17. We'll see what the Congress does, the new Congress and a new administration, what they're able to do per your last comment. And so we'll hope for the best. So with that, Jack, thank you very much. All right. Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.